This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Michelle Abudi speaks with Billy Shore, founder and chief executive of Share Our Strength. So Billy, you have had a long and accomplished career with roles in the private sector, government, higher education, and as an author. Can you tell us more about your professional background? Well, sure. So, you know, most of those kind of ingredients uh, in government and uh, private sector and nonprofit have all kind of, you know, fit together in one way or the other. I started working in the United States Senate almost like the day after I graduated from college. I went to school in Philly at Penn and drove down to D.C. and started uh, working in Senator Gary Hart's office and then um, worked for him for about 10 years and then became chief of staff to uh, U.S. Senator Bob Kerry. Uh, and between the two of them, they ran for president three times unsuccessfully, but it left me with a lot of um, kind of community organizing and political organizing uh, experience and, and skills. And when we started Share Our Strength, the idea was to see if we could put those together uh, in a way that enabled people who maybe were not political but wanted to make a difference in their community um, so we tried to create a vehicle through which they could literally share their strength, whatever they were good at, they could, um, get involved with us and we would translate that into community benefit, uh, in our case, focused around the issue of hunger, which to me had, in the years I'd worked in government and now all the years I'd worked in the nonprofit sector, how it had always seemed like a very solvable problem. So you founded Share Our Strength in 1984 with the mission to end hunger and poverty in the U.S. What prompted you to do this? Well, the catalyst um, at the time was a really catastrophic famine in Ethiopia. It was, you know, probably the largest humanitarian crisis uh, of its era. And uh, a lot of uh, there were a lot of people that responded in different ways. There was a lot of celebrity responses. There typically is. And um, it led uh, the musician Bob Geldof to create Live Aid and um, We Are the World and things like that. But um, but we wanted to create something that would be more lasting and more permanent. And so uh, although the catalyst was this international famine in Ethiopia, um, once we started Share Our Strength, we got very focused on uh, domestic issues because there was a lot of need here in the United States as well. So how have things changed or stayed the same in the 35 years you have been doing this work, either in the U.S. or internationally? Uh, They've really been uh, a dramatic improvement. So, uh, you know, particularly in the U.S., we got very focused on childhood hunger as a solvable problem. And and over the last, even just over the last eight years, uh, we've driven childhood hunger in the United States down by about 30 percent. So there's actually fewer kids experiencing hunger in the U.S. than there have been at any time in the last probably 25 or or 30 years. Um, And one of the reasons is that we've got really good um, 
programs. We've obviously got no shortage of food in, in America, and we've also got no shortage of food programs like school lunch or school breakfast or the uh, SNAP food stamp program. And so uh, we got very focused on how to connect kids to these programs that exist. And as a result of it, um, millions, literally millions more kids are now getting uh, three meals a day. And we're starting to see all the benefits that come with that there test scores are better, their attendance at school is better, their behavior is better. Um, so yeah, I'd say there's been dramatic improvement and um, although solving poverty is complex, uh, we're finding that feeding a child is is not, that that's doable. And um, we may have poverty, but I think we'll get to the point, you know, within the next 10 to 12 years where uh, we no longer have kids who are hungry in the, in the U.S. Is there an initiative that you think has been most impactful or um, most near and dear to your heart? Well, I think the big thing that we did is about 10 years ago, we um, kind of transitioned from being a grant maker to hundreds of other nonprofits to um, running our, putting a stake in the ground uh, around ending childhood hunger. And so we created this campaign called the No Kid Hungry Campaign. And one of its signature initiatives has been uh, to make sure there's options for kids to have breakfast uh, during the school day, not necessarily before the school day, which is hard for a lot of kids to get to school early. And there's the stigma attached to being the kids who who go early for the free breakfast. So we've moved breakfast um, in thousands of schools um, and for now an additional 3 million kids. Uh, we've moved it from the cafeteria to the classroom and uh, it's just a different way of doing things, and uh, it required a lot of schools to, you know, make some adjustments because they weren't used to serving breakfast in the classroom. But once we did that, we started to see, you know, millions more kids get breakfast and um, a lot of improvement in the school systems. That's great. I see lots of ads on the subway for that sort of initiative. Um, yeah. So what size is your team and your operating budget? Well, we're, you know, we're all privately funded. We have an uh, operating budget now of about $85 million and a, a team of about 240 people. And, um, you know, most of what we do is uh, have boots on the ground in communities, working in schools, working with mayors and governors to make sure these programs are executed well. So our, our product really is our our people. That's where we invest everything because the, the, the food itself is paid for it, all these school meals. Uh, that I've been describing are 100% federally subsidized. So the key is to unlock those and the leverage on, you know, the dollars for us is, um, you know, if uh, if we spend, um, you know, $100,000 in a, in a community to get them to move their breakfast from the cafeteria to the classroom, and that adds uh, 60,000 kids or 80,000 kids who get breakfast every day for, you know, for the rest of their time in school. Uh, it's a great, great return on the investment. So uh, a lot of our staff is out in the field um, doing that kind of work. That's our, that's our principal value add. What are your latest initiatives that you're working toward and how is success measured for those initiatives? Well, the, I think the great thing about what we're doing is that, uh, you know, we can count in a real-time way how many more kids are getting fed. Um, all of that is um, you know that kind of the federal reimbursements have to be tabulated by the schools, and so we know on any given day how many more kids are getting breakfast, lunch. There's also an after-school 
supper program. There's a summer meals program when the schools are closed. So we're building participation in all of those and able to, you know, as I say, kind of count and measure the number of kids that we're reaching. So, um, so the No Kid Hungry campaign continues to be our, you know, our principal um, uh, kind of program and initiative. And I think at some point relatively soon, we'll start to think about how do we not only feed these kids, but, you know, prevent them from being hungry in the first place, um, which is a harder thing to do. It, it gets to how do you deal with some of the root causes of poverty? Yeah, that's very important. In your opinion, why are poverty and hunger still such a problem in our country? Well, I think we still have a lot of inequality, um, unfortunately, and economic uh, and kind of structural in inequality in our economy. So even when the economy does really well, it tends to leave a lot of people uh, behind. So hunger is really just a symptom of the, you know, the deeper and the more complex issue of poverty and um, and the best way to solve it permanently would be to find ways to lift more people out of uh, poverty. And uh, unfortunately, our politics are so divided right now that although there's, you know, there tends to be a lot of support and consensus around feeding kids, there's not as much support for uh, doing what I think would be best for kids, which is to help their parents and strengthen their families. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, political bias. Um, and blaming of you know people who um, may not be able to work or may be disabled. People tend to uh, blame people for uh, being in the situation that they're in. I think that's often uh, very unfair. So you know, ultimately, we're going to have to make long-term investments in uh, education and uh, workforce development and training people for jobs of the future for kind of the workplace of the future if we want to really get to these underlying problems. Yeah. So Community Wealth Partners is the for-profit consulting arm of Share Our Strength. Can you tell us more about it and the decision to use this model as a revenue producer for the not-for-profit? Yeah, the idea behind Community Wealth Partners was, um, was had its origins in a lot of uh, nonprofit leaders coming to us asking them if we could teach them some of the things that we had done. Um, share our strength, our economic model was really based on a lot of um, cause-related marketing, corporate partnerships. Um, we, When we started the organization, we didn't have any government money. We still don't. Uh, we didn't have a high donor program. We didn't have a direct mail program. We really um, focused on creating kind of win-win partnerships. So uh, thousands and Probably 25,000 chefs and restaurateurs are very aligned with Share Our Strength. And as a result of that, companies that market to chefs and restaurateurs were signing contracts with us. Um, uh, banks like Citibank or American Express before that, companies like Williams-Sonoma, um, they you know, wanted to be aligned with an organization that was working so closely with so many of their important stakeholders. And we were at the point, and even today, with a budget of $85 billion, probably, you know, $60 million of the $85 million comes from uh, different events and corporate partnerships. And so the advantage of that is that you're not dependent on traditional philanthropy. You're not competing with brother and sister organizations. There's no strings attached to the dollars that, um, that we bring in so long as we create the marketing value that our corporate partners are expecting. So a lot of other 
nonprofits came to us and asked us if we could help them position themselves in a similar way. And that led to the creation of Community Wealth Partners, which is a, uh, a small consulting firm that we own. Uh, it's wholly owned by Share Our Strength, and the profits go back to Share Our Strength. But the idea is really to uh, help other organizations leverage their assets more uh, strategically. And, to, and we call it Community Wealth Partners because you know, we all tend to think of wealth as something that, um, you know, makes us either individually enriched or, or the corporations um, create wealth. But there is a way of creating wealth that benefits the community. I, I would argue that that's what, you know, Share Our Strength has been doing for the last 35 years. And um, community wealth is a very different kind of wealth. Everybody benefits from it. So the idea was to um, really help, help other organizations be able to do the same thing. What other organizations have you worked with? With Community Wealth Partners? Yes. Uh, well, we worked with a, a wide range of organizations. Uh, the Annie Casey Foundation has us work with a lot of their grant recipients. We've worked with housing organizations. We've worked with uh, environmental organizations uh, in the past. Uh, currently, we work with a number of uh, large foundations that are trying to help their grant recipients build their own capacity so that they're stronger and better able to execute their, their strategies. Great. What advice do you have for people looking to solve societal problems in their immediate and wider communities? I, I, one of the, the kind of the mantras that we follow at Share Our Strength is from the writer Jonathan Kozel, who uh, advises and urges that you pick battles that are big enough to matter but small enough to win. And um, I really like that advice in terms of the question that you just asked, because there are so many um, issues that we all care about, uh, ranging from immigration to climate change to uh, nuclear arms uh, to hunger and poverty and education. And, um, you know, I think to, to be able to sustain uh, the work on those, you need to have victories. You need to reach certain benchmarks and across certain milestones. So this notion of picking battles that are big enough to matter but small enough to win um, so that you have bold but actually achievable goals and can demonstrate progress, uh, I think is very important. And that would be, you know, kind of my advice. I think people, uh, particularly given our the political divides in our country, are desperate for evidence that progress is possible. Um, and so I think uh, an organization needs to organize itself and set itself up so that it, it can demonstrate it's making that progress. And I think, you know, just working on things that you're passionate about that at the end of the day, that is the key to any um, sustainable effort is that the people at the heart of it um, really care authentically and are passionate about what they're doing. Absolutely. How can listeners get involved with or support Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry? Uh, well, that's a great question. One of the things I love about the issue of hunger is that there's a role for everybody to play in it. That people can volunteer, they can volunteer at food banks and soup kitchens, they can do advocacy work to impact public policy. We just had a, last week, we had a group of about 25 um, business leaders and chefs and restaurateurs up on Capitol Hill in Washington. I think they met with 28 different members of Congress to talk to them about um, some of the legislation that's affecting hunger and poverty. So there's ways for people to do that. Um, we've got a website, uh, nookithungry.org. Uh, and if you go to that website, you can find lots of ways that you can 
get involved, but uh, it's an issue that lends itself to everybody being able to play some kind of role. In your opinion, what do you see as the biggest sustainability challenge we have to take on during 2020? Well, uh, you know, I guess one of the one of the parts of that is is has a lot to do with people understanding how all of these issues are interconnected. So, for example, um, right now we're doing some research. It's not completed yet on the um, the connection between climate change and hunger and poverty, and um, you know, some of the early uh, work on that research shows really devastating impacts that climate change is already having on nutritional quality, on migration patterns, on the severity of natural disaster, disasters. So I think this, this, you know, sustainability issue really gets to people understanding these interconnections. If you're going to work on hunger and poverty, as, as I do, you can't see uh, climate change or environmental issues as separate. You have to see how they impact and you have to become an advocate around those as well. Absolutely. What do you see as the biggest challenge in your day-to-day -day work when it comes to sustainability? Uh, I think the biggest challenge in our work is to um, is, is to make sure that people have the opportunity to have experiences where um, they really get closer to the to the work that's being done in the community. To me, there's nothing as powerful as uh, going into uh, a community or a neighborhood or a place you haven't been before. We just came back from a trip to the border, um, the Texas-Mexico border, where the immigration crisis and the separated family issue is so profound. Uh, and when you take people to, to see that work, uh, it, you you don't have to send them an email or give them a speech or show them a PowerPoint. Uh, the the need and the compelling nature of the people who are working to address that need uh, they really speak for itself. And and so I think what makes our work sustainable is making sure we connect to people's hearts and that we really uh, create the emotional resonance for them to uh, really personally feel uh, in ways that um, make them want to be a change agent to make them want to really get involved in the community. And the, the challenge is to scale that because um, there's only so many hours in the day and so many days in the year. So uh, how many trips can you take to the border? How many trips can you take to a community? How many groups can you take to see that? Um, we try to do as much of that as we can, but it's uh, there's a challenge in, in scaling that so that you reach everybody that ought to have that experience. Do you mind? talking a little bit about your books? Sure. Um, well, I, I wrote the, the Cathedral Within using cathedral building as kind of a metaphor for, particularly in the nonprofit sector, how we can work on something for a very long time, uh, even if we don't necessarily see um, our, our work completed because many of these challenges of hunger and poverty um, and environmental work are gonna take, you know, years if not decades or or longer and one of the things that struck me as i was learning more about the way the great cathedrals in the world were built is that most of them took three or four or five hundred years to build so that the one thing that everybody who worked on them uh knew the only thing that they knew for certain was that they wouldn't see their work finished in their lifetime and um that didn't detract from their uh dedication or craftsmanship it didn't uh, depress or discourage them. Uh, it actually enhanced their commitment because they realized that they were 
part of something larger than themselves. So I thought there were some real analogies there to, you know, people in the nonprofit sector. I've worked on uh, the hunger issue, for example, for 35 years, and uh, hopefully I get to work on it for another uh, 10 or 15, but I doubt I'll see poverty completely eliminated in my lifetime. And uh, the point of the book was that that shouldn't, um, you know, be a discouragement. It should actually um, strengthen your commitment. So I was looking to write something that affirmed the really great work that so many people are doing in communities around the country and uh, give them a, a, a reason to be inspired by it uh, and not um, uh, turned off by the fact that it, it might take a long time. They might not see it finished. I mean, I guess that applies to all the work anyone's doing in the impact space and also trying with climate change and the environment. So I think, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I feel like anything, um, anything really worth doing is probably worth doing because it's a big and bold and audacious uh, challenge. Um, the, the small things are, you know, mostly already done. If it's, if it's easy to get done, somebody else has probably already done it. So most of us are left with the really, uh, difficult challenges and they take a long time. Um, and and I, I, I remember back to when I started Share Our Strength and had a very simplistic and naive notion that, um, oh, well, we're going to raise money and we're going to give it to food banks and that'll be the end of hunger. And then just like any issue, including you know, those we've talked about, climate change, the environment, uh, there's complexities that you, you, know, you only start to understand uh, enough as you get deeper into it and you realize it's actually going to take a lot longer to solve this problem than I thought. And um, when your diagnosis changes, your prescription changes. So if you, you know, if you think you're going to solve a problem in five years, you don't need to build a lot of infrastructure or capacity to do that. Um, if you say, actually, this is going to take 50 or 60 years or longer, um, then you start to have to, you know, organize yourself in a different way. Exactly. And just one more question. So your approach to tackling the big problem of uh, hunger in our country is a dynamic approach with the um, for-profit consulting arm, and you also do a podcast series. Can you touch upon that a little bit? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. We do a podcast series uh, called Add Passion and Stir, and it's a, a weekly conversation uh, that always includes um, two guests in addition to myself. One is always a chef or somebody in the food world, and the other is a kind of a, a social justice expert. So we look for connections between food and so many of the things that we care about. Um, our, I remember our very first one was with uh, the chef Jose Andreas, who's been you know, traveling all over the world doing disaster relief kind of stuff. And we had him on with uh, the, the CEO of the UN Foundation, a woman named Kathy Calvin, and, uh, and the UN Foundation, for example, is involved in uh, helping uh, women in Haiti uh, have, and, and other parts of the world, but we were talking about Haiti on this particular podcast, uh, use cleaner cook stoves so they're not uh, as subject to as much uh, pollution and, uh, and uh, things that are dangerous for their health. And Jose, as a chef, was very interested in that and went to Haiti and worked with them. So every week on Add Passion and Stir, we talk about passion that uh, chefs in particular bring to not just their work, but uh, social change. And so we've had, uh, you know, many of the really prominent chefs in the country and restaurateurs like uh, Danny Meyer, um, people like uh, Ariana Huffington was in a conversation with Claudia Fleming, a former pastry chef at Gramercy Tavern, 
Um, so we look for these really interesting intersections and tend to find them in the course of the conversation. That's great because it is more of, as you said, that the issue is more than just food itself and food insecurity. It's a lot of layers to it. Yeah, exactly. And again, these interconnections between you know food and uh, all of these issues that we care about. And where can listeners find the podcast? Is it on all the platforms, on the website? Yep, it's on the platforms. It's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can go to adpassionandstir.com, uh, which is our um, uh, our own website. Uh, it's linked at the Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry websites. So, yeah, you can find the, the archive of all the episodes there uh, or just Google Add Passion and Stir. Well, thank you so much for answering all these questions. I really appreciate it. What a good question. Thanks. Thanks for doing the podcast. Learn more about Share Our Strength by visiting shareourstrength.org. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, March 20th. We'll be speaking with Natasha Frank, founder and CEO of Eon Group. For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Bard MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu slash MBA.